Welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Chiara. And I'm Victoria. And today we're reading a poem by Wilfred Owen called Duce et Decorum Est. Is that right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, more or less. I don't know. There's probably classical students out there. Who are like, like who are What is this? What is this? Because do you, pronounce the ch- do you pronounce it in classical Latin or is that an ecclesial Latin thing? Ecclesial Latin has a soft C. So it'd be, um, but it, but I think classical Latin has the harder C. Although in that context, it's probably still dulce. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it's all good. Yeah. All right. I'm just guessing. I only speak Italian, so. <laughs> complete. All right. All right. Well, we, we still don't quite know if it's Wilfred Owen, but we're just going to go with that. Um, so this is uh, a poem about the First World War. And the reason why we selected this is because... Um, Anzac Day is coming up. Anzac Day, the centenary of uh, the first Anzac Day, uh, if you will, which was the um, storming of Gallipoli. Um, the 19... ill-fated Gallipoli campaign, which was Australia's sort of first campaign. But it was our first campaign with It New was Zealand. our first campaign as our own nation state because yes. we did participate in the Boer War, but we weren't really... Yeah, a, it's sort of a big we were, we, we, yeah, but it's, yeah, anyway. But we were with New Zealand in this one. So it's the first time we uh, the Anzac existed. Mm-hmm. So the New Zealand of Anzac. Um, and so... Yeah, I think it's it's somewhat fitting um, to do this. Uh, it's a very short poem. I highly recommend that you read it. Three um, stanzas, it's roughly. Horrific, but it's quite Four. beautiful. Um, One's two lines. That doesn't count. Yes, it does. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know nothing about poetry. Victoria says it counts. Okay. okay. Four stanzas. Four, Four stanzas. stanzas. All right. Um, and so, yes, uh, if you want to go read it right now, that would be wonderful. Go do that. Oh, yeah. Just Google Wilfred Arwen, and it'll come up. And so now that you've read it, um, as I mentioned, it's it's quite a stark uh, poem um, about <laughs> very cynical. Um, the the title comes from uh, from who's the poet Horace Horace, uh, mm. the Latin poet Horace, uh, and it is sorry, Chiara, do you yeah, want to read this? Uh, it's the last two lines, or in the last two lines of the poem, uh, "Duce et decorum est pro, pat- pro patria mori." Which is, um, it's sweet and fitting. It is sweet and fitting for one to die for their country. Is yes, that right? Yes. Um, and yeah, evidently it's it's quite a it's cynical. It's quite ironic. Yeah, it's, quite it's ironic. Said with quite it's quite bitter irony. Sweet or fitting for a person to die um, in the horrific way that many people died in the First World War uh, through gas, um, which was the first and, and the- last war, I think, that utilized gas as a, as a oh, weapon. Mecha- well, conventional, well, conventional, conventional war. war, war. Um, um, I mean, from a European perspective. And, uh, no, they didn't, I don't think they used any, I'd have to, actually, to be honest, I don't know if they used chemical, um, chemical agents or not in the Second World War. I'd have to look at that. I'm but, not aware of it because it's usually related to the First World War. I think. Yeah, this is the first time, this is the first time 
This is and the there first was, time I guess, chemical weaponry had advanced to a point where because well, this you had the, air warfare in the uh, Second World War, gas was probably not as necessary. Um, and also just the mechanisation of warfare as well. This is the war that sees tanks emerging at the very, you know, in the, la- in the last couple, in the last year of the war, you have machine guns, to the hu- you know, a huge deal where you know the, the traditional way of fighting, which would be so to horseback with. Swords and stuff. There was that too, but also guys like, you know, two opposing sides lining up in front of each other with their single load <clears> rifles going bang at each other. And basically, if you were lucky, you managed to get to the other guys to cut them down with your bayonet or not. You got shot and left, left on, you know, left on the ground. But it was, you know, two guys facing off, you know, two sides facing off in the morning. They get up in the morning, they go battle and they go home in the evening. They come back and do the same thing make again until... Make ground or lose ground. Make ground or lose ground. And whereas this war was totally different because for the first time all it took was two dudes with a machine gun to mow down an entire line of soldiers again and again and again. And it's, yeah, it was yeah, it was horrific. It was really because, horrific. Because the I, I believe that the First World War is, is an interesting uh, hinge point uh, or a shift in warfare from the older style warfare in which you had armies and units which operated in, uh, I guess you see like, um, you see those old films or those old paintings or something. Oh, you know, watch an American like, Civil War movie. Yeah, of them like pushing, you know, units across a map or something like that. And then they would be engaging uh, with each other directly. Today, warfare, uh, as we know, contemporary warfare um, in places like the Middle East and that tends to be much more guerrilla-based, much more tactical, much yeah. more small unit warfare taking out specific positions. Also very as- positions. also very asymmetric is the technical term we use okay. in military history studies. So- Could you say it's a lot less deta- it's a lot more detached now as well because you might not even see the people that you annihilate with if you're drones doing in- things with computers. It look it drones are probably the it, not no up until basically we started using drones and mm. the development of robotics in warfare but again that's still really cutting edge really new really experimental so no one's quite sure what to make of it and how it impacts um how it impacts the human person in you know in warfare but for the most part like I mean, otherwise it's still like otherwise you know guerrilla guerrilla warfare is still just as nasty and unpleasant and difficult and mm. you know shell shocking as, as you know the first world war was. Yeah. I mean, just and put think... to put it in perspective, I think some of the statistics around the popu- the um, number of people who died. I think England lost a quarter of an entire generation mm. to this war. So. One in four men. Australia has a somewhat similar statistic. No, at proportionally, we're not quite that okay. high. We still lost a lot of people, but proportionally, it might be no, one seventh we did. Or something and also, like well, like there was no conscription as well, so not every young okay. male had to go. Whereas yeah. over in England, they did. And so, for every four men, you know, young men who went to war, one would not come home. Like that was a brother. You know, that was, you know, one person from every family was lost in, you know, like that's like, it's staggering. And you can, you can really hear that bitterness coming through in this poem. It has its effect, as we know, on, um, on history. I mean, the First World War is probably one of the major points in the historical development of, of Western civilization in the sense of the rise of postmodernism really got its legs after this war. Um, well, modernism came in. 
well, in I between th- them and then postmodernism came after. Am I correct in thinking mm, that? I, I'm sort of more of think, well, thinking from like, philosophical. Mod- oh, modernism, philosophical, so you, sorry, you, I'm you have the, around the Renaissance, mm-hmm. you have the rise of modernism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that develops into... Um, and I then, guess. yeah, but even, World even, War One's kind of the say, cracking of already, modernism. Mo- modernism had already started to fall apart yeah. before the First World and you War. See that in, um, and you see that in the art but world. This was the... This was the point, I guess, at which I guess the nationalist project of modernism yeah. really fell apart because it was its absurd end um, in that you see these these nations and nationalism, which had ultimately become, I guess, a new religion. Nationalism had become the new religion. Mm. Um, and it's, as I said, it's absurd end, which was that people marched... Not people, sorry... Nations marched into this into this war, and entire generations were obliterated. And that's why it was called for, the war to exactly, end all wars. Well, for what exactly? What, what what was it about, Kiara? World War World War One started when Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. was assassinated by Serbs. But it seems it seems like from from my understanding, it's it's almost as though really. Everyone was, it was ready a big... for a war. That just happened to be the thing that was like, okay, excuse. We've got our excuse now. Let's go. Pretty much. I mean, you're not you're not far off, and particularly the history that's starting to come out now, a hundred years after the war, and you see things with the benefit of hindsight, but also you can put you allow you're allowed you're allowed to put it in context of you know before and after. And basically, there was a huge military buildup over the late 18th century. There was a massive grab for territory and empires. Um, the great grab for Africa, for example, you know, basically all the European leaders sat down, slapped down a ruler, divided up territory and said, I'll have that bit and you can have that bit. And that's how Africa got stuffed up for, um, and basically empires fell at this war. The Ottoman empire collapsed. Germany was utterly broken. They only finished paying off their reparations for this war about two years ago. So it took them like 90 Ninety something years. Ninety to- years, and arguably three different actual nations, as in Germany, post post World War One Germany. Yep. Then, the Third Reich, and then West Germany, and, and East- then Germany now. So that's yeah, four. You reunited, reunified like, Germany. Like yeah, it's re- uh, anyway. Um, it broke Germany. It broke the Ottoman Empire. It broke Russia too. Mm. I mean, because then they had their October Revolution and Ra communism. Um, we all know how that went. Um. This is this is it was a massive ego trip in other words and basically nobody could pull their pull their heads out of their butts to actually um, say actually maybe going to war is not a good idea because no it won't be over in six months and no we won't be home by Christmas they'll be stuck in trenches in mud singing Silent Night with the other side for one night and then go back to killing each other like that was the yeah. That was a great lie of the First World War. They were like, oh, it'll all be over in six months. It'll be fine. Never, ever put a and time limit on war. Um, how did it eventually end? Well, eventually everybody was just exhausted and to the point of... And Germany was at the point of surrender. Mm-hmm. And the United States had come in to, like, sort of beat down... You know, do the final the final beat down, so to speak. And so they formed the league. They tripped, basically, it was Woodrow Wilson who, fought, helped, who sort of hammered down the Treaty of Versailles, um, which... Then set the set in motion the uh, uh, the set in motion everything that was going to happen in about twenty years time with World War Two. But um, they formed the League of Nations and said we're never going to do this again ever. This was horrible. This was a really bad idea. 
Uh, and then they did. And then they did. Um, <laughs> thankfully, they haven't again. They haven't again, after which is that. for um, all its flaws. The UN has something. You know that is some that what hmm. that is why it was put in place hmm. to not fail like the League of Nations did. And for the most part, we have not had a war a, a war on the scale of World War One or Two. Hmm. We haven't had at least the Western world hasn't had a total war situation. Um, well, World War Two was a to- absolute that's what I mean. global since total second, war since the Second World no, War. We this haven't. hasn't been a total war. And when I say I, when I say total war, I mean as in the nation state is geared towards the fighting of this war. Yeah. Australia, of course, has been in several wars since then. Yeah, we've uh, Korea, been... Vietnam, uh, the various wars, Afga- in the Iraq, East. Afghanistan. Um, but at no point has that affected me, aside from a couple of my tax dollars going into it. Mm. Um, it hasn't. The, the country's Mechanisms. The country's economy hasn't been geared towards that. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, but I mean, we've been talking here about uh, the First World War and its effect on a grand scale. But I think something that this um, that Wilfred Owen's really touching on is the personal, cost. the personal story mm. and the personal cost of <clears throat> war and how that grand scale comes down upon a person um, as an individual. It's it's horrific. It's a horrific poem. Um, and if you if you didn't read it, um, it's ultimately about um, men marching through mud uh, and coming under a gas attack. And the um, the how would you put it? In retrospect, someone who's, thinking who's about the person, it. Yeah, who's the person who uh, I guess is the the agent? It, the, the persona. Um, some would say it's Wilfred Owen. I would. Uh, I'm not saying what are they called? What are, What do you is mean? It called a persona. The persona. The per- yeah. yeah. So the persona. Um, I guess, then recalling uh, a man behind who didn't we get can, his mask on We can read the time. last, um, we'll read the last paragraph because okay, it's a good... summarise. So the first, um, first three stanzas are about the, um, the gas attack and trudging through and um, him being plagued by this memory in his dreams. And then the last stanza, uh, which a lot of people think is dedicated to um, someone who was quite famous at the time, Jessie Pope. Uh, she wrote lots of poems to encourage men to go to the war. Um, uh, Later on, this dedication was taken away and they think that it was um, sort of dedicated to a whole mass of people who kept promoting men to go to the war, like the women who would give out... When you say dedicate, are you using that in a... I'm using that in a little bit of a bitter way. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, I was addressing them. Addressing them, yes. Um... But, yeah, later on, that direct dedication was taken away and it was more geared towards a whole bunch of people that were propagating this Horace-like image of war, especially, some believe, the women that um, gave out the white feathers to men they believed Mm. were cowardly for not fighting Uh, on the front. (laughs) All right. Um, if If in some smothering dreams you two could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin... If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, uh, dolce decorum est pro pro patria mori. There we go. Not good at the Latin. Um... Yeah, so I think that really sums it up. And that's a really good yeah, uh, snippet of the 
it's it's almost uh, the, the tone of the whole poem, the, the realism and the grotesque nature of his description. But also, you can tell this man was in the front. He saw these things, and you could tell he was, that he, he was he was he was a soldier. He, he was, was a officer. soldier. He was yeah. an officer, and um, he saw many men die, and he died in action. Um, one week, almost to the hour before the armistice. So when his mother got the telegram about his death, uh, that was on the day of the armistice. So when the bells were ringing, she got the, the telegram, telegram about that her son, son was killed. Her 25-year-old son, mm. may I add. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think that's, I guess what that highlights is, as I said, the, the personal nature um, of, of war. Um, I mentioned prior to... Um, I mentioned to Victoria, and I posted this on Facebook as well when we were discussing it, but mm-hmm. um, that I didn't want to do an anti-war poem because we, we had this idea that we wanted to do a war poem with relation to Anzac Day, and I really just really dislike people using Anzac Day as an opportunity to, to kick Anzacs, ultimately. Um, or to kick sol- you know, soldiers like Wilfred exactly, to and, and just using it as an excuse to kind of... Anyway, I'll, I'll leave that aside. But what, what this does is I think... This is this is tasteful in the sense of it's about it addresses the horror of war without a, without attacking those who take who who take part in it. Yeah, um, the men on the ground, and I mean that's really part of. I think I don't know if this is so much of a, a bit of a, a bit of a myth that Australians like to have, but and I think it's one that's perpetuated quite a bit by uh, the film Gallipoli. Um, <laughs> This idea, oh, the film Gallipoli. This idea, that 80s soundtrack, um, <laughs> this, this, this idea that the Aussies were, you know, they were just doing their bit and the, 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 the British were kind of sitting there drinking their tea and sending off um, troops that were Australian not there, you know, troops, troops that were not theirs as cannon fodder. Gun. Yeah, they were essentially cannon fodder. Which is not true because it was that there were no British officers there. There was mm. a general. But it was the Austra- it was the Australians that were ordering them over those trenches. Like it's a really disingenuous portrayal, actually. But anyway, no, nonetheless, <laughs> I guess if we if we take away the British element, then um, then you have still this element of this affinity with with the with the um, the infantry, with the the the, the, the ordinary common- soldier, the yeah, ordinary soldier, yeah, the ordinary soldier, and that I think that's something um, that I think this captures quite well. Uh, and reminds us, I guess, and something that we could talk about right now, is that war is horrific and should only be used in very specific circumstances. And I guess this can dovetail into... Just um, war theory. I mean, we don't necessarily need to talk about the dryness of just war theory, but at the end of the day, um, whether... And it's it's an important... In what, in what situation? I mean, as Catholics, we're not simply pacifists. No. I think that's something to emphasize. Oh, because pacifism... That was something that I believe in the First World War Catholics were painted as because they opposed conscription. Yeah. And... um, Catholics in Australia were, yes. Mm. Um, Um, And that was something that was used rather horribly, uh, and I think it's had political implications ever since uh, on the relationship between Catholics and Protestants in Australia, uh, was using that as using Catholics and their opposition to um, to conscription as an attempt to marginalise and to bolster uh, the, the rest of Australian society. Um, 
Billy, anyway. Hugh, Billy Hughes. The it's, war between yeah, Billy. The war Billy between Hughes. Billy Hughes and Archbishop Daniel Mannix was is quite is, the relationship between the two is actually quite a fascinating one from a historical perspective. Mm. So if you ever wanted to look into that particular time in Australian history, you know, go for it. There's yeah, lots of good stuff. There's lots of good stuff. There's lots of good stuff on it's it. It's something that's reverberated. Uh, um, but, in you know, I mean, pacifism, I mean, we should just say something. Pacifism in itself is a contradictory position to hold because as an individual, you instinctively do what it takes to protect your life and the life of your loved ones, even if it means harming or killing someone. If someone came up to you and, you know, was going to hit you and you knew there was no other measure. to know there was no other way to deter them, but to prevent physically prevent them from hitting you then you are not a pacifist, if that makes sense. So if an individual is permitted to do it, a nation-state is a collection, a body of individuals, then nation-states, in theory, also have that right and, and, should, and should exercise that right when needed to. And that's basically the one of the underlying core principles of just, war, of just war theory is, you know, don't pick a fight, but if someone's going to hit you, for, you know, for God's sake, don't sit there and let them hit you for no... Yeah, it's the... Um... <laughs> It's, I guess it's this idea that the preventative measure, the defence, is something that, in actual fact, stops sin. So, in the sense of um, if by you uh, defending yourself, you're preventing a person, for example, from, from committing murder. Yes. Um, that's kind of the idea behind it. Now, we have to be very careful about how we go with that because people can then kind of use that as, well, hang on a second, does that mean that uh, that the Americans bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki was can fit into just war theory? No, it doesn't, by the way. Arguably, <laughs> hold, hold on here. Uh, because it arguably uh, prevented more casualties uh, in a ground campaign within Japan. I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But I just, I'm just saying that, like, the, the nuances of, of just war theory, um, I guess it's, it's almost common sense. Yeah. It seems like if you, exactly how you put it, you know, if you're walking down the street and someone comes up to you and, and is attempts going to, bash to hit you, you or no your matter wife, what, <laughs> you're probably going to use a, a reasonable measure to prevent them from doing that. And talking them down is probably not going to do it. So you would use a reasonable defence. And the Catholic Church would say that's fine. And it's also fine for the nation state to be able to do that as well. Was that what was happening in the First World War, Kiara? It's hard to it's hard to say because it's hard it's really hard to untangle the complex web of of rivalries that were going on at the time. Mm. Britain was very very warily watching Germany at the time or you know you know, and and the scary thing of Prussian nationalism, which was terrifying. G.K. Chesterton wrote quite a bit on Prussian mm. nationalism. He, of course, died in the 1930s, so he did actually say, have, you know, say a lot about the Great War or you know the build up to World War Two. Um, so, but he was very critical of Prussian nationalism and the very scary tone it took. So. England's sitting over there going, oh, my God, what's going on? And mm. the continent, you know, France is, go you know, France is there going, rah, you know, we are French, we are awesome, look at all our vast swaths of territory. And you had the Ottomans, you know, everyone had all these shifting alliances and rivalries. So, honestly, this war, was, uh, if you look at, like, my, I have a limited understanding of just war. Mm. Okay, I, do, I have a very basic understanding of just war. I've read the principles, I've read a bit of Augustine, I've read a little bit of Aquinas. That's about it. I'm not an expert, but... From my understanding, this was not a just war. 
Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of one of those interesting things where the analogy I'm thinking of at the moment is that if someone was to attempt to try and claim that there was a just war thing going on here, to take it back to the walking down the street example, it would be almost like if you uh, had an argument with someone and then you continued to have an argument for the next five years and it got worse and worse and worse. And every time you met the person, you spat at them, you would... And then one day, they decide to punch you in the face. Is I- it... It's it's almost like, okay, okay, you kind of do have a sort of right to defend yourself, but you really, really shouldn't have got it to that point. You shouldn't have let it get and to that point. And it's almost like, that's, I mean, again, limited understanding here on, on my part, but it, it almost seems like that's what it is, that a self-defense, okay, yeah, okay, you have the right to defend yourself, but should it have even gotten to that point? Well, it's it's like, you know, the people they were basically, like, think of Europe as a bunch of quite, you know, quite tetchy, carnivorous animals, bears, lions, whatever you want, you know, take your pick. And you just kept They're poking. Like, yeah, yeah. You just keep poking the bear. You poke the bear, you poke the bear, you poke the bear, they poke the bear, then eventually the bear gets up and goes, raw and takes a swipe at you, and then you kill the bear and go, ha, look at me, I killed the bear. And it's like, well, would you even wake it up for and you, Mora? But it's not just like, it's happening <laughs> Why did you even sides? wake it up? It's yes, all, it's it, all they're all sides. doing it to and each other. Oh, it's, it's like, just a messy... It's just a messy thing to talk about. Um, but, I mean, returning again to... What, one of the things that I find just fascinating about this is the stark contrast between, as we said, again, talking about that grand thing that's happening yep. um, between nation-states. And then, in reality, okay, it's all fair enough for, for people to... for, for wars to happen um, in, in defence or in, in ideals or, or what have you. But at the end of the day, the the bloke on the ground is the one who has to bear the brunt of it. Yes. No man, no person, no man should ever die in the way that this man died. In it's it's horrible. It's absolutely terrifying. And there's a reason we humans, have a moratorium on chemi- use yeah. of chemical weapons. In this this the, the particular we got to a point where we could say that the efficiency by which we kill people in a war is over and above the dignity of that person who, whom we're killing. Um, that it's almost like we reached a point where we just didn't care. Like, I, I don't, I just don't, it, it's, it's just no wonder, like I said, that you, that Oh, one person, war, one have, person like, is a story, Picasso a thousand people and, are a statistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have people like Picasso emerging and then you have after the Second World War people like um, Sartre and that, that are just... The, all the nihilists are the... That are just like so broken, and because this is how we treated people, this is what we said was okay. For what? For 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 nationalist pride? Like that's it? Yeah. That's what we did this for? I mean, there's bigger things in the world to fight for, and it probably wouldn't be worth doing that for either. Mm. Um, but yeah, sorry, Victoria, you were, you were about to. Say oh, that. I just when we talk about this sort of stuff, I I don't. I'm the less learned of the three when it comes to the war, so I just prefer to listen. But um, Luke was talking about the type of chemical warfare and um, what it does to the human person. I just wanted to mention that this particular instance that he's writing about is mustard gas, which is a very particular kind that... It's nasty. uh, ...basically kills you from the inside out. And um, that's something that is reflected in the form of the poem. So it kind of... it's People usually break it off into two parts, so... um, Part one is 14 lines, which you might remember from other casts is a sonnet, like a 
formal kind of form, but it's been dissipated into uh, two parts to, you know, I suppose, reflect the fracturing nature of war. And later on, it's refracted even more because it's in... Because then 2 and 12. 2 and then 12, which is even worse. It's basically a couplet and something else. Um, don't know the name of it at the moment. Um, but basically, the first half, the first sonnet, is very visual and exterior and talking about actions and all those sort of things. And then the second sonnet, which is frightening, the first sonnet is terrifying, the second is frightening, uh, is very visceral and very in-your-face and, you know, gurgling and cancer and um, basically something eating someone from the inside out. So as we start from the outside, talking about actions, it ends with someone basically choking to death um, and those very poignant lines of Horace at the end. And um, the first time I heard this poem, uh, someone, the person that was telling me about it, she read it out and she said, I need to share something with you. Uh, when I read this out to um, a group of people, I started to cry and I got so emotional um, just hearing that because this woman was hard as rocks. Mm-hmm. Like I've never seen it. I, I think, I don't even think I'd seen her smile properly. <laughs> and, um, and, and she said, yes, the first time I read this to people, I started to cry and I, I didn't finish it. So I think that was Wilfred Owen's point about this poem, the fact that, as Kiara said, people became statistics. Um, if you were at home, um, maybe paying, like maybe you were too old for the war or for some reason could You had a medical issue. Whatever. It, it could be quite easy to perhaps distance yourself, though it's not likely because you would have probably known someone that went away. You would have known but several of them. It's not as likely as today. Yeah, but it was a possibility. And Wilfred Owen uh, wrote this um, first in 1917. He sent it to his mother, and then it was published posthumously in 1920. But they think that he wrote it when he was in, uh, I'm going to say this incorrectly, but Craig Lockhart uh, War Hospital in Edinburgh. Okay. He was taken away because he was, um, he was suffering from neuroasthenia, which is shell shock syndrome. Okay. And so you can just see him, like, He's talking Which about today is post-traumatic stress, stress disorder. disorder. Yes, yes. And there's a couplet here that's in all my dreams before my helpless sight. He plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. He's talking about the man he saw dying, dying from coming back to him in his sleep every night. Which is very, very typical of post-traumatic stress mm. disorder. Is you know visions and hallucinations and you know that, memories that coming can back send to haunt you, you. Mad, mad. Um, <laughs> interestingly portrayed in Virginia Woolf's uh, Mrs. Dalloway. Uh, follows a man with uh, shell shock syndrome. But the the type of poetry and literature that came out of the First World War is unlike anything the world's seen before because the world hadn't seen something like this before, this fracturing and this death and this en masse. Um, and to the point where the only way to cope, the, the only way to cope with it was to either go mad or shut down. Yeah, pretty much. Like, those are your only psychological responses left mean, to you. You could say then... This is not something that I'd go into in any specific detail, but um, the something that I'm interested in, the crisis of masculinity. Um, you have in the First and Second World Wars, in the in past that, and this is this was reflected a little bit in um, uh, when we did uh, the Five People You Meet in Heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, the the main character in that, um, he was in the uh, he Eddie. was in the Second World War. Eddie was in the Second World War, and he never talked about. He never talked about the war because of his experience with what he thought might have been a child. Um, and, of course, his experience in the, as a prisoner of the Japanese. Um, but how that has affected society in that we've had for about the last 150 to 200 years, 
generations upon generations of men who are who are traumatized by another, war. not necessarily by war, but like uh, become distant from their families and become distant from their role as men, either through the Industrial Revolution, uh, in which case they they never saw their families, uh, or through one of the wars, in which case they had to shut in on themselves, um, or today um, through the sexual revolution, through pornography, um, through that kind of distancing self from the family and from from his wife, um, or through the, the all the other processes that are going the on, the other because... problems that are that are going on with regards to the sexual revolution, um, men who 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 sadly have been abused as children and things like that, um, you have. This whole, for the last, like I said, 150 or so years, this is one of the main parts of that, though. You have several generations of men who are completely traumatised by their experience of war. And this affects their children, their sons, and their sons carry that into the Second World War, into the Vietnam War, into uh, their, their attempting to try and find themselves as a man, um, until you have a point now where what is what is masculinity again? What is it now? Like today, masculinity is it's it's vestigial or it's or it's it's nothing. Like it's just you know oh beef up or no offense to people who go to the gym. I'm not saying no, no. Either. But you're right. But like, it's, it's machoism. Not, it's not it's masculinity. Not, it's it's no one really knows what it is. It either doesn't exist or it's silly. Um. So, but that's just a random aside there. Um. But, yeah, I think it's fascinating, uh, Victoria, how you said there about how the disintegration within the poem, that that's mm. one, I guess, one of the, the calling cards of postmodernism, again, is is disintegration. Um, and I think we've mentioned this in poems that we've done before, mm. in the emergence of the postmodern period, this um, this disintegration um, within within art uh, and within society, which reflects and also predicts um, society and yeah that's one of the final things I think I see really evident in this poem is I can almost hear it sh- him shouting a question at me is that this is progress because the whole up until World War One, basically Western civilization was the light on the hill that was bringing technological and philosophical yeah, um, and social advancement Hegel, Hegel. Very, uh, lots of philosophers, not just Hegel, lots of other philosophers. World War, you know, well, you know, up until sort of about, you know, after the six months time, you know, time frame for World War One had been passed, that's when people realised, that's when the shattering of mm. progress began to happen. And basically all the technology we had created, all the, you know, Western civilization had touched all four corners of the globe. They were, you know, bringing civilization to all peoples around the world amazing technological innovations that were saving lives that were you know all this amazing thing and then this progress also gave us mustard gas yeah gave us machine guns gave us tanks like gave I said, us it's the, it's you the know, absurd end of modernism i think and um, you can see exactly why people like sartre you know sartre and camus and a whole bunch of the other nihilistic philosophers in the mid 20th century thought the way they did because they didn't have anything to believe in anymore. If you couldn't even believe in the humanist project of progress, mm. what was there to believe in? 
Yeah, yeah, like um, this is the end. You know, this is kind of and and you can and I can hear Owens yelling at me. You know, this is pro, you know, is this progress? Hmm. And that's when you and again, like you see the beginnings of postmodernism in here because that postmodernism ultimately is just the the bitter the bitter end the bitter realization that no, there is no such thing as progress. Human beings are doomed to be you know to be terrible forever. Hmm. And interestingly enough. You have Owens here with this experience, and you have, but you also have other men that we have read: Tolkien, C.S. Lewis. Tolkien lost all four of his best mates mm. to World War One, and he has internalized that experience entirely differently. Having said that, he was writing this from the trenches. But Tolkien also, like, you look at some of the early poetry that they're starting to publish now posthumously um, of Tolkien. He's writing back of very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Horrors, and you have C- you have C.S. Lewis, you have Tolkien, you have a bunch of other writers at the time who came out of World War Two with an entirely different conviction, and yeah, you can kind of see the two the two ways people dealt with it, dealt with the shock and the horror and the shattering of progress. Mm. You know, Tolkien saw it as we need God, yeah, whereas other people saw it, you know, set, you know, basically said the there is nothing anymore. There is no god anymore or if there is a god he doesn't care anymore Wilfred Owen can be placed in that lot because he was quite a religious man before the war Mm. and And then he saw the war that dissipated when he saw what humans could do yeah it's a rather sad place to to end no but it's it's... an important place to end because you've got to look at the dark in order to really appreciate the light if that makes sense I think as you mentioned people like Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and um and John Paul II and the many, many others who lived through uh, the two the two world wars um, show that that people can live through horror and still come out beautifully. I mean, St. Maximilian Kolbe is a fantastic example of that. Um, he didn't survive the Second World War, of course, but the stories of um, of the events leading up to his death are, are phenomenal. Uh, I guess where I would want to end is just to, I guess, the reflecting back on why on earth we, we uh, chose this poem, which was the centenary um, of Anzac Day. And I guess it's, once again, I, you know, the, the effect that it has on the, on the individual person. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, a lot of discussions about, um, you know, was it, is, is the support of something like Anzac Day uh, is the support of of troops? I guess you could say that's a very American term, but of the of veterans and soldiers, um, a kind of implicit uh, okay. support of of, of war. Um, I would argue no, and the reason why I would argue that is because I think that a lot of the popularity of things like Anzac Day is because of an affinity with the soldier, not necessarily an affinity with um, the- with war. Or an affinity with um, with uh, nationalism. Yeah, that, it's an affinity with the human be- with the human store with the human being who was our you know who was who was a father who was a brother who was you know a friend who was you know he was he was someone to someone. Mm. And mm. even the unknown. So- and I think that's really poignantly point you know in the rituals around the um, remembrance of the unknown soldier. Mm. Um, and in in a way, it's almost re- treated with a religious like reverence in Australia, and you know, because Australia we do pride ourselves on us, our, you know, on being sort of secular and being fairly neutral towards religion. But come Anzac Day, 
and it makes you you know it really makes you it really makes you wonder how you know you know wh- whether that's really the case because the rituals around it the reverence and the beauty in this in those ceremonies are almost religious in a way yeah it's interesting but i will we really need to stop now we need to stop um, so we'll, we'll stop there um we've sort of just come up with some thoughts and that that's surrounding it but, um, yeah um we'd love to hear your thoughts we too. would love to hear exactly we'd love to hear your thoughts i mean we only have our own perspectives we weren't alive during the war of course i mean kiara knows a lot more than i do um but yeah i will like i said we definitely have to finish there um so we won't have time to discuss what we're doing next time which i don't know but we'll figure it out yeah um so yeah send us an email like cradio on facebook comment on our stuff there and yeah we'll see you next time bye 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 that was an episode of catholics free from cradio.org.au